Hello, Learn to Love listeners. If you are looking for more love, empathy, compassion, and mindfulness in your life, I encourage you to check out our upcoming eight-week compassion cultivation training starting April 19th. This incredible course combines traditional contemplative practices with contemporary psychology and scientific research to help you lead a more compassionate life. Led by Mary Doan, the supervising instructor for education programs at the Zen Caregiving Project, the eight-week course is perfect for anyone looking for more compassion and understanding in their life and is particularly good for parents, caregivers, educators, therapists, managers, and public service leaders. To learn more about the course, just head to theheartcenter.com and click on the live online compassion cultivation training link. We sincerely hope you can join us for eight weeks starting from April 19th. For those of you on the West Coast, it will be from 4 to 6 p.m. For those of you on the East Coast, it will be from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. But of course, you can join us wherever you may be in the world. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible counselor, coach, and author, Shelly Pumphrey. Hello, Shelly, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And today we're going to be talking about protecting yourself from narcissistic abuse. And for those that don't know, Shelly Pumphrey is a licensed professional counselor, relationship coach, Reiki master, and author with almost 30 years of clinical experience. Passionate about holistic mental health, Shelly specializes in working with trauma, adult attachment, narcissistic abuse, and pathological love relationships. She is the founder and clinical director of Trilogy Holistic Mental Health in Denver, Colorado, the clinical director of Strength in Motion Counseling in Boulder, Colorado, and she also maintains her own private practice where she offers narcissistic abuse recovery coaching. Her book is Insight is 2020, How to Trust Yourself to Protect Yourself from Narcissistic Abuse and Toxic Relationships, which will be published this May. How are you today, Shelley? I am doing wonderful. Thank you. So I'm super excited for today's interview and to get into this really important but also challenging topic on narcissistic abuse. And before we get into narcissism specifically, I just wanted to ask you about selfishness in general. In your book, you reference selfie culture and what is sometimes called the me generation. And in America too, I do think we live in a very individualistic society. So sometimes I think, aren't we all kind of narcissists caught up in our own world, believing everything that we think, only looking out for ourselves? Such an important question, (laughs) (laughs) which is also part of why I have such an interest in this topic. You know, I think the way to look at narcissism is on a spectrum. And everybody has some degree of narcissism. 
and there's a healthy degree where, you know, we have to have a little bit of ego. We've got to have some pride. We've got to have some confidence in ourselves. Like if we didn't have that, we would be just a blob of nothing, right? So I like to say, you know, on one end of the spectrum is is what we'd call just more ego-based or, you know, lightly narcissistic kind of tendencies. And then we can go all the way over to the other end of the spectrum where you have people who are you know, diagnosably narcissistic. So, you know, if you think of it that way, it's easy to see like, yes, we can, there's a lot of us who kind of live in this very American culture, I think, of putting ourselves on social media and selfies and talking about (laughs) ourselves all the time. You know, there's just a lot of that that's happened in our culture in the last um, couple of decades with the rise of the internet and social media. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is a narcissist because they're engaging in that. So it's interesting you put narcissism on a spectrum. On the one side, we have what might be clinically diagnosed as narcissistic personality disorder. But on the other side, you put a little bit of narcissism. And I wonder if I were to put that other side in the middle and go towards more like kindness, generosity, caring, empathy, because this is something I think about a lot, like how can we encourage people? people to be more loving, to be more compassionate in the world? How can we encourage people to drop out of selfishness and become more kind, generous human beings? Would you also perhaps extend the spectrum a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things that you're talking about is empathy and compassion. And so if we kind of put that on the spectrum too, you've got empathy and compassion over here on one side that you're referring to. And then if you get all the way over to where narcissism lives, there's a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion. So sure, you've got people who all the way over on this other side, you know, when I say there's a degree of narcissism there, it might be very slim and it's it's almost not even the right word to use because I would agree with you like over over there is just a high degree of that empathy and compassion. But what can happen over there is people and we'll, we'll talk about this as we go into this interview is I often see people that are on that end of the spectrum who are getting into relationships with people on the other end of the spectrum. And it's almost like they need to keep their empathy and compassion for sure, because we need a lot more of that in the world, but learn how to have a little bit more ego and boundaries in order to protect themselves from narcissistic abuse and those that are lacking in empathy and compassion. So it's so interesting. We mentioned how oftentimes the people that are quite caring, quite compassionate end up in the relationship with somebody who is on the opposite side of the spectrum. So Let's get into just the clinical observations and definitions of what exactly is narcissism when it gets to that point where it might be in the DSM. Okay, so narcissism, to to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, there are certain criteria that people have to meet. Some of the criteria is that people generally lack empathy for others, so they don't really know how to be in another person's shoes or to feel bad for them or to think of, you know, just be sensitive to other people's needs and feelings. They can also have a sense of superiority where they think that they're better than everybody or their way is the best way. There's some grandiosity where, you know, it kind of goes along with that superiority. Often you can see, this is kind of this textbook looking kind of narcissist that we think of is somebody who they kind of flaunt it. 
you know, like I'm the best. They can be really boastful in front of people. I'm the best. You're, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so it's like, they're not afraid. They lack some of those social skills of, you know, some of us might be afraid to admit that we think we're the best if that's how we think, even though that might be narcissism too, you know, but they kind of wear it on their sleeves. Sometimes there's also some overlap because uh, with some other personality disorders, because narcissism and a couple of other disorders called antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder are in this group or this cluster called cluster B. And this is something that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't need to know about. But in the world of psychology, we think of this, these three personality disorders have some overlap in traits. So sometimes you'll see, I like to call it dramatic and erratic behavior. So narcissists and these, you know, antisocial or borderline people often have a lot of dramatic kind of emotional outbursts, a lot of ups and downs, highs and lows, and then erratic, you know, a lot of impulsive things or um, or impulsive reactions or behaviors or thoughts. Um, and especially with narcissism, um, you know, they can often go into different kinds of um, kind of emotional states. Like people will see like this Jekyll and Hyde personality where one minute they're really loving and everything's wonderful. And then the next minute they can be a terrorist essentially. So a relationship with one with a narcissist has this d- dramatic and erratic feel to it. Lots of lots of highs and lows, lots of conflict, um, but also a lot of really intensely um, emotional or connecting or loving moments too. So those are some of the basics. With some of the overlap with antisocial personality disorder, this is somebody who lacks empathy and really doesn't follow the rules. So they, you know, this is often a criminal who, you know, it's breaking the law a lot of the time. They know the difference between right and wrong, but they don't think the rules apply to them. And that kind of goes in with narcissism as well. Rules are for everybody else, but not me. And then borderline is a lot of um, fears of abandonment, a lot of intense, like, you know, wanting to connect in deep intimacy, but then can get really um, emotionally distraught if if they perceive or feel that somebody's abandoning them or criticizing them. And then that kind of overlaps into narcissism where they can be really sensitive to criticism or what they perceive as criticism. Um, if they think somebody's kind of in some way thinking they're not good enough or, you know, they think somebody's putting them down in some way, they can get really reactive or defensive or engage in some other psychologically manipulative tactics, which we might cover here uh, in the rest of the interview. So that's kind of an overlap. You can see that with these different, you know, these three different disorders, each one has a little bit of the other one in it. So that's really fascinating. And I want to get more into the types of people that do fall into, as you mentioned, this cluster B. And I know our topic today is on helping the victims of such abuse. But let's also talk about helping these people. Because something I really believe in is that there is a fundamental good in all people. And part of the motivation of this podcast is to help us all, everyone, bring more love into our lives, including anyone who might have a mental health condition. And you write in your book about the research into the prevalence of antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and psychopathy. And you write that about one out of every 10 people in the United States lack empathy or a conscience. 
and I read that and I was like, okay, first of all, wow, <laughs> that's a lot yeah. of people. Um, right? But secondly, okay, so we want everyone to love more, right? How can we bring more love, compassion, kindness, empathy to people who almost don't seem to have like that part in their brain that produces these effects? Yeah, such a great question. And I can tell you that as a as a therapist who has spent my whole career working with, you know, a range of mental health issues, I have complete empathy and compassion for anything that might be coming up for somebody, you know, with their mental health. And I think that we all need to have compassion and empathy. It's, you know, it's not somebody's fault that they have a mental health diagnosis. And in fact, there's even, um, you know, research showing that that narcissism, antisocial personality, borderline, and even psychopathy can have some genetic influences as well. So, you know, I always like to think of that too, that, you know, either there's some trauma in the background or there, you know, somebody was born with it. And why should we you know, judge somebody for something that isn't their fault. Nobody, nobody goes into the world choosing to be a psychopath or a narcissist, you know, but I think that what we have to do is separate out being compassionate and having empathy for people with mental health disorders, where there's a lack in empathy and conscience with setting boundaries and protecting ourselves from those kinds of people. So the question really in my mind is, can you have compassion and empathy for them? but not let yourself get tied up in these kinds of relationships. Because what happens is, as I mentioned earlier, the people that have a lot of empathy and compassion are usually the ones that get stuck in those relationships and they end up having way too much empathy and compassion for this wounded narcissist or sociopath thinking, you know, I can, I see their wounds. I can love them. I, you know, I, I, he's just wounded. I can make excuses for this poor behavior because he's acting out of his trauma, you know? So that is a dangerous place to be because that can keep you stuck in a relationship and allow somebody to be abused for years and years and years. So to me, it's about, you know, making a separation there. Like I can feel bad for them, but it doesn't mean that I have to be in relationship for them or with them. Right? Absolutely. You know, oftentimes people stay in an abusive relationship because they love their partner and they forget they also need to love themselves. And a huge part of loving oneself is setting up healthy boundaries. But going back to like, you know, these types of people, is it possible to develop empathy for someone who quote unquote feels none? Is it possible to develop a conscious for someone who quote unquote doesn't have one? So this is where you have to think of the spectrum of narcissism. Somebody that has some narcissistic qualities that is maybe not completely on the high end of the narcissism spectrum, they can certainly engage in some therapy and learn to increase empathy or, you know, improve their behaviors or their kind of, we'll call them the pro-social skills. But part of what happens is people that are highly narcissistic or are, have, a, have one of these personality disorders, they have a trait or a condition that we call egocentric and what it means is that they are not able to see that their behavior is a problem for other people whereas other people that don't have this disorder this condition can say you know oh gosh i i said something really rude to that person i feel really bad i'm i'm even kind of ashamed of my behavior i should probably work on my choice of words and not do that 
Whereas somebody that is egocentric, even if given feedback or consequences, they could come back and say, well, that's your problem for having a problem with me, or I don't need to change. So the question isn't, can they necessarily learn empathy or develop a conscience? The problem is that even getting them to that point to want to learn it is really hard because they don't think that they have a problem with it, like the rest of us might see. So, and that just make you know, it just makes it really hard for them to be able to make effective change in themselves, which is really, you know, it is sad and hard to see that some people really, you know, it can just destroy their lives as well as the people that get affected by their um, behaviors as well. Yeah, that's really challenging. You know, a lot of times, like the people that need therapy aren't the ones that might go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's too bad. So, you know, our topic for today is narcissistic abuse. But I'm curious if, again, these two things kind of go hand in hand. Is it possible to be in a loving, supportive partnership with someone who might have a diagnosis in cluster B, as we'll say? Personally, I would say no. And especially if you are with somebody who is even diagnosable. And let me maybe not answer that so black and white. (laughs) Because it's, you know, what I would say is don't get too focused on the diagnosis of your partner. You know, first of all, that's up to a therapist, a psychologist to do. If you are with somebody that is hurting you, harming you, you know, abusing you in any way, that should mean either A, you try to get help or B, if they don't try to get help or help is not changing anything, that relationship is not healthy and probably isn't going to be fixed. You know, bottom line, pay attention to the behaviors and how you feel in the relationship. Let that be your guide. But, you know, just kind of going back to your question and being more direct because of that egocentric quality to people with these personality disorders, especially narcissism and antisocial personality, they are very difficult to change and can be incredibly destructive in a relationship. So I feel like when people hear the term relationships, it goes to intimate or romantic relationships. But when we talk about narcissistic abuse, I imagine it can come from a number of areas, including a family member or even a dear friend that might exhibit this kind of behavior. Do you find this goes across the many types of relationships that we have? Absolutely. I mean, it can be in any relationship, even with um, coworkers, or it's really common to have a supervisor or boss that's a narcissist. And it can be incredibly destructive in an intimate romantic relationship. But other relationships, even if it's your your boss, it can be pretty traumatizing for people. And sometimes people don't, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that it is actually narcissistic abuse. So earlier you mentioned there are a certain type of people that get attracted to or tend to get involved with narcissists. They tend to be the more caring people. And let's go more into that. So again, like what kind of people do tend to get drawn to narcissists and why is that the case? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because there, you know, there's been a lot of um, talk on social media and the internet in the last several years about narcissistic abuse. And some of the common explanation that most of the people out there talking about it use to explain why people get into these relationships is that they see either 
people that have codependent patterns or come from families with trauma in their background. And, you know, that's what gets them into these relationships. But there has been some research done by a woman named Sandra Brown, and she's really this kind of pioneer in the field of dealing with narcissistic abuse and what we call pathological love relationships, which is a relationship with somebody with one of these personality disorders. And she found that 63% of people that, of women, her study was on women because this commonly affects more women than men in our intimate relationships, at least. She found that 63% did not have, did not come from backgrounds with significant trauma, nor did they have any patterns of codependency. But what she found was they had two in two personality traits in particular. And these were um, the trait of conscientiousness and agreeableness. And these traits, so the way to explain it is agreeableness is a personality trait. Well, let me back up. First of all, what's important to know about personality is personality is essentially hardwired into us. These are traits that we're born with. And even though we might do work over our lives to manage or change some of it, it is really ingrained in us. So these things are not easily changed or healed, so to speak. So if you have a trait of agreeableness, let's say, this is somebody who's really flexible, who who's forgiving and, you know, somebody makes a mistake, they're going to be quick to forgive and move on and say, you know, it's okay. I know you're human. You know, these are people with a lot of compassion and empathy and just willing to let things slide, let's say. And we like to say that agreeableness is the trait that often gets people in these relationships in the first place because they start to see these negative behaviors in a narcissist and they put up with it. They forgive it. They overlook it. And, you know, they're often, these are people that, you know, I think, you know, you're in the yoga world. You, you, you know, we, we can both identify with the term empaths. You know, a lot of empaths talk about being caught up in narcissistic relationships. And what I see is empaths have these two personality traits. So, Agreeableness is the trait that gets you into the relationship. And then conscientiousness is the trait that keeps you in the relationship. And that one, again, is also a lot of compassion and empathy. And what happens with conscientiousness is there's a high degree of loyalty and um, this, you know, always wanting to kind of stick it through to the end. Like, I'm not going to give up on this. You know, if this relationship is a mess, I'm going to do everything I can to fix it. Or, you know, so it's just this stick to itness that people have that makes them stay in these relationships despite horrendous abuse sometimes. So those two things are the biggest two personality traits or factors that can get somebody into these relationships. And then, of course, um, there there are people who have codependent traits, who did grow up with trauma or had a narcissistic parent. Um, and then there's one other aspect that I'm not going to spend a ton of time on because that's like a whole other episode. But I also find that people that have what we call an anxious attachment style tend to get involved in these relationships as well. And I don't know if you've done some interviews with people about attachment But anxious in particular is very vulnerable because um, they have a lot of fears of abandonment and there's some dynamics that, you know, with a narcissist, narcissists love to be on a pedestal. And when an anxiously attached person gets 
anxious about a person leaving them or not perceiving that they're good enough for the relationship, they tend to put a partner up on a pedestal, which feeds the narcissist, right? And then they start to feel like they're not good enough or they're too much for a partner, which gets reinforced by the narcissist's gaslighting and emotional abuse. And it just turns into a very vicious cycle. Um, I'm just barely scratching the surface on that one because it's a little complex. But those are some of the vulnerabilities um, that people have that can get them into these relationships. Yeah, we have talked about attachment styles before on the podcast. And it's always nice to have that reminder because it is really important to know about the different dynamics that are at play. And when you mentioned how a certain type of people get attracted to people who might have narcissistic tendencies, to me, this seems like good qualities, right? The flexible, forgiving, empathic, conscientious... And I'd hate to be like, oh, stop being such a nice person and (laughs) think more about, okay, how can we equip this person to better see the red flags and see the other things that are happening in their relationships? Because you actually wrote in the introduction to your book, in my work as a therapist, there are two questions that every single survivor of narcissistic or relational abuse has shared with me. How did I miss the red flags? And... Let's go right into it. So what are those red flags and why do people miss them? Well, there are what I'd like to call early stage red flags and then there's later red flags. And the timing of those can vary based on the the relationship of the narcissist. But part of what happens is if we take a person that's agreeable and conscientious, they miss the red flags because they're literally in front of their face and they're like, it's okay. I forgive you. And it's the niceness. It's the conscientiousness. It's the willingness to put up with it that literally just blinds you to what's going on. And I I mean, I know this, I've personally experienced narcissistic abuse and I have these traits and this is definitely what got in my way every time. And one of the things that I cover in my book is what I call the internal red flags and the external red flags. And the external red flags are what we can look for in a narcissist or a sociopath that help us know like this behavior is not okay. For example, in the beginning of a relationship with a narcissist, there's a lot of what we call love bombing, where things feel intense. You've met your soulmate. They like, they're the perfect partner. And if things move intensely and quickly, that's definitely a red flag. And it can be really hard for people to discern because they think they've just met their perfect mate. And when you've met your perfect mate, it's easy to say, okay, three weeks later, let's move in. But no, (laughs) we don't move in in three weeks. Okay, people just say, no, don't do that. Time is your friend. Let it go for a long time. So it's it's this intense, dramatic, and almost like dreamlike quality in a relationship that can be some of the very early signs. And anybody that I've worked with and I'll include myself in that, when they look back, usually they can see the red flags that they missed within weeks of the relationship. And it's just that they either didn't know they were red flags because let's say they came from a family history, had a narcissistic parent or other narcissistic partners, and it's kind of the norm, or they have the agreeableness and conscientiousness traits that have them overlook these red flags or forgive them. The other thing that Um, you know, I talk about are these internal red flags. And these are the red flags that 
I think are way more important for people to pay attention to. And what this is, is you definitely want to look at these external red flags, like the qualities of, of a narcissist. You know, you can Google that all, all day long and find out what kinds of crazy things they might do. But internal red flags are basically listening to your body. Our body always knows the truth and we just have to learn how to listen to it. And that can be challenging, especially if you're being traumatized or if you have a history of trauma. So a couple of things that I teach people is to listen to trauma responses and what that feels like in the body. We, you know, a lot of us know what fight or flight is, but there's four specific trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And I won't go into all of those right now for the sake of time, because that could take a long time. But some of the teaching I do is like, are you feel, are you experiencing these trauma responses? And if you're feeling that with a partner, especially more than once or twice, that is a sign that something is wrong. You should not be having a trauma response in a relationship. So real quick, what was that fourth one? Flight, flight, freeze, fawning. and fawning. Fawning. What, I haven't heard of that one. Which, what is that? The term came from, I want to give it credit uh, or give the person credit, Pete Walker. He's an author that wrote a book called Complex PTSD. And basically it is extreme people pleasing, if we could just sum oh, it wow. up into that. And it's where you're really putting your needs aside, you know, not being authentic, doing everything you can to keep this person happy or from erupting into, you know, conflict or anger. And that happens to be a very common trauma response that I see in people in these narcissistically abusive relationships because they get in this state of being really fearful of, you know, what's the, what's the next thing that's going to set the narcissist off? So they do a lot of pleasing and, you know, trying to make them happy so that they don't get upset. But the reality is, is a narcissist will find anything to get upset about. So fawning is that fourth response. Wow. Yeah. And freezing just to like, that's when people are kind of shut down, kind of disconnecting, dissociating, feeling a little bit out of your body. Basically, these trauma responses are things that happen automatically in our brain to protect us and they are not conscious. They are just there to keep us alive and to keep us safe. And so when we're feeling them, it means our brain is detecting that something is wrong. That's why it's so important to listen to them. Well, I love that. I love this concept. I'm going to have to look more into it because it is really fascinating and particularly appropriate for today's topic. That's a wonderful aside. Let's go back into those internal red flags. So you mentioned listening to your body and notice trauma responses. And what I heard from you is that a healthy relationship should not have that response. Yes. Now, let me just say like every in every relationship there are arguments, there are fights. And, you know, you might feel fight or flight. So fight is where you might get, you know, really worked up. You, you yell, you might slam things, break things. Like having that once in a while in an argument is one thing, but having that all the time is a sign that something is wrong. Or, I mean, ideally in a really healthy relationship, you're talking things out. You might get a little heated, but it's not this big trauma response where your body and your mind are being hijacked by, you know, this big rageful kind of feeling. That's a fight response. Or flight is where you're constantly busy, um, wanting to run away from it, wanting to escape. Those kinds of things might happen once in a great while in an argument, but there's a difference between healthy arguments that get you a little worked up 
and having trauma responses quite frequently in a relationship with an abusive partner. Absolutely. It seems obvious, right? There's a difference between healthy arguments and trauma responses. But as you mentioned, people aren't aware of these dynamics. So are there other internal red flags we should be looking out for? Yeah. So another one that is really common in these relationships, and this usually happens over time, people who've been in these relationships for a while tend to start developing physical symptoms or illnesses or disease. And what happens is when you are living in a state of trauma, stress, or fear, you know, for a long time, your body is constantly having um, releases of adrenaline and cortisol and stress stress hormones. And our bodies are only meant to have that periodically when we have to get up and give a speech or, you know, we're driving our car and somebody swerves in front of us and we have to swerve really quick and you feel that hit of adrenaline go through your body. We are not meant to live with that all the time. And so when, when our body is having that constant release of those hormones, it starts to develop inflammation and inflammation tends to lead to disease or illness. And so some of the signs that I start to see in people who've been experiencing this abuse over time are things like weight gain around the belly, insomnia. They often will start uh, to get diagnosed with um, things like irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. And if people who've been in it for like years or decades, like with a long-term partner can have even more severe disease. But most people that I talk to uh, that have had these relationships for more than so, you know a few months at least will have at least one, if not several different physical conditions that are coming up that they didn't have prior to the relationship. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's fascinating. So I want to ask you about the topic for today is protecting yourself from narcissistic narcissistic abuse. And maybe I'm just getting too caught up in semantics because what I'm hearing from you is I feel like we're almost armoring ourselves. Like we're equipping people with certain tools in order to kind of observe what is happening in the relationships to know whether or not they should leave it. But is there more to this idea that there are things we should do in order to protect ourselves in terms of boundaries, barriers, walls, separations in order for these experiences not to happen? Yeah. And I think some of it is, again, it's educating yourself about what these kinds of dynamics look like or characteristics of narcissists. You know, it's always good to learn and to you know, whether that's reading a book, using the internet, listening to shows like this, especially if you're dating and trying to find a partner, it's good just to know. I think I feel like knowing about attachment and knowing about how to prevent toxic <laughs> relationships are two really important things to, to know. So the other things are learning what to look like, look for in the beginning of a, of a new relationship. So we're talking about people that are dating and you know, just on the early end of things. Again, that dramatic and erratic kind of behavior. If you see like a really dramatic change in your partner's personality, like everything seems really great. And then all of a sudden they do something really crazy or really mean, pay attention to that. Don't let that go. You know, those are the things that usually people can look back and say, oh my gosh, I saw it. You know, two weeks in, I saw this horrible behavior and I let it go. So anything that doesn't feel good, if, if you 
find yourself checking out, feeling upset, getting super anxious, feeling afraid. Those are your internal red flags that are saying something is wrong here. The other thing that is super confusing is that very high, high kind of fantasy honeymoon feeling at the beginning of the relationship. And people, especially people who have anxious attachments need to be very aware of this because they can be extremely vulnerable when they feel such a need for, um, you know, somebody to be really connected and consistent and dependable. Sometimes what narcissists do in the beginning is they will offer a lot of contact, a lot of consistency, a lot of like, I really want to be with you all the time. That can feel so relieving to somebody with an anxious attachment because often they're in the dating world and they're dating a lot of people who might be more avoidant and are like ghosting them or blowing them off or texting every other day. And it creates all this anxiety. But then here comes a narcissist who's like in contact with them every day. And, you know, two weeks later, they're like, I'm in love with you. I just, I feel like you're my soulmate. (laughs) And that anxiously attached person on one level, they might think this, something's not right with this but they might feel so soothed, like their nervous system feels soothed by somebody that offers that, that it can get them roped in 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 the beginning. And that's why I say it's important to know your attachment style if you're dating so that you can be aware that this is a risk for you or what this kind of stuff feels like for you. The other thing, you know, that I think is really important is there's a concept called mirroring that narcissists do. And this really happens at the beginning of the relationship. And this is part of what can be really deceiving. Mirroring is where they, they are so good at watching everything about you. They will start to mirror back to you, your interests, your likes. They, they will pick up on subtle things, even mannerisms, and will start to mirror it back to you so that you start to think, oh my gosh, here's my perfect person. Right. And One of the things that I like to tell people is, you know, you want to make sure the walk matches the talk. You know, an example is like, I, I, you know, I had a personal story. I had some, a narcissist that I had fallen for, seemed like he was super spiritual and into all these things that I was into. He could talk about it, but when it came to like, you know, going to a class together or really engaging in like deeper practices or conversations about these spiritual things we were talking about, he couldn't go there. He didn't know, like it just, like it just stopped there or he'd create some kind of drama about, you know, some weird way to make me feel crazy or like change the subject. So, you know, things like that, where it seems really good, like almost too good to be true. Check it out. See if their walk matches their talk. You know, if they say they're an excellent skier, take them skiing and see if they know how to ski. (laughs) right? If they're really good at yoga, get them on a mat and see what they do. (laughs) So it's so funny because I only watched the first half, I'll be honest with you, but there's this Netflix documentary called The Tindler Swindler. I don't know if you've seen it, but it captures a lot of the things that you're mentioning where this guy, as you mentioned, would essentially love bomb these kind of vulnerable women and, you know, tell them that they're in love with them and say how rich he was. And many of the red flags you mentioned came up where things moved very fast. There are some red flags. They're like, hmm, this is strange. He says he's running from the police. And, <laughs> but I'm sure it's fine. Right. And, 
um, you mentioned, yeah, if, if, if things seem too good to be true, you might want to check it out. If they say they're very rich, you might want to investigate a little bit before lending them hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, so it's, anyways, it's very interesting. And yeah. So I'm imagining somebody listening to this podcast, reading your book, doing some of the work, noticing the red flags, and potentially leaving their relationship or perhaps even quitting their job if they find that the narcissistic abuse is coming from their boss, for example. And now this person is quote-unquote single or free. And I'm curious what kind of healing and growth is necessary or needed after basically the abuse of being in a narcissistic relationship. Yeah, such a good question. Some of this depends on how long or the degree of like your involvement in the relationship. But most people who've had, you know, a significant amount of time in one of these relationships, and especially if it's a family member or an intimate partner, most people will have some degree of trauma. And in fact, um, research has shown that people that have been in a long-term intimate partner relationship with a narcissist or one of these three personality disorders, 75% of them will have symptoms of PTSD and 90% of them will have at least symptoms of trauma. If not, you know, the 75% could be diagnosed with PTSD. It creates trauma and that requires therapy that handles trauma. And I, as a trauma therapist myself, I, I may be a little biased, but I will say that if you have experienced this kind of trauma, there are two things that are really important to do. One is to work with a therapist that knows about these types of relationships. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of therapists out there that are adequately trained in this. Um, and one thing I will say is if it's with your partner, do not go to couples therapy if you think that your partner is a narcissist. It is a horrible thing to do. Part of it is most therapists are not trained in how to spot narcissism. And the, the partner, the narcissistic partner can be very manipulative and charismatic and can sometimes win over the therapist who's maybe very well-meaning, well-intentioned, and it ends up traumatizing the victim even more. So that's kind of a side note about couples therapy. Get your own therapy. And at the very least, you know, somebody that can deal with these kinds of relationships is super important. If, if you have nobody in your area that can deal with it, the next be best thing is at least a trauma or a therapist that can deal with trauma. And when I say a therapist that can deal with trauma, I mean somebody that actually has training in some kind of body-focused or what we call somatic type of trauma treatment. Trauma should not be dealt with with just plain old talk therapy trauma needs to be dealt with with something that helps the body release it because trauma is stored in our nervous system and our body. So some things to look out for are treatments like EMDR or something called somatic experiencing. Uh, there are you know, a multitude of different kinds of trauma treatments like that, but you want to be with a therapist who has some kind of knowledge or they can talk about how they treat trauma you know, and connect it into the body somehow. So yeah, it's important to go to therapy. And part of it is like, if you don't go to therapy and deal with the trauma of these relationships, it's really easy to get involved in another one. And it's also, you know, having a therapist that really understands these pathological love relationships 
is important because a lot of therapists will look at, well, this person must be codependent. So we need to deal with healing codependent patterns. But if you are somebody who actually is not codependent and you have the personality traits of agreeableness or conscientiousness, you may be spinning your wheels with a therapist who doesn't understand that and not learning how to really tailor, you know, manage those those personality traits so that you're not overlooking red flags and getting into these relationships. So, you know, that's why it's so important to have somebody that really knows how to work with it. Absolutely. And just speaking to you has been so wonderful. It's really obvious that you know how to work with these really challenging dynamics. So I so very much appreciate you coming on to the show. And unfortunately, our time is winding down. So I have to finish by asking you the question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I love that question. I wish that everybody knew that love is everywhere. It is not scarce. I wish that they knew how to love themselves first and foremost, and in the deepest, most unconditional way, not in the ego, narcissistic way, but like, you know, that we are all beautiful human beings, perfectly imperfect, and we all deserve love and are worthy of love. I love it. Love yourself in the deepest, most unconditional way. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Shelley Pumphrey, for coming on to the show. Your new book is Insight is 2020, How to Trust Yourself to Protect Yourself from Narcissistic Abuse and Toxic Relationships. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Well, they can check out my website, which is ShellyPumphrey.com. And my name is spelled with a C-H. So it's C-H-E-L-L-I. P U M P H R E Y. (laughs) (laughs) Not an easy one to spell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't worry. It'll be in the show notes too. And people can also check out your Instagram and your book comes out in May. So thank you so much, Shelly, with a C H for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that we learned today, including how narcissism exists on a spectrum. We all have some degree of it. Those that are on the extreme end tend to lack empathy, think they're better than everyone else, have a lack of compassion. And unfortunately, caring and kind people tend to be attracted to these kinds of people. So it's important to look for the red flags, external red flags like love bombing and things going really fast, and internal red flags like trauma responses. And don't forget to love yourself in the most deepest unconditional way. And healing yourself from these relationships is so important. So find a trauma-informed, trauma-focused therapist like the amazing Shelley Pumphrey. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Shelley. Thank you. Wow, that was a wonderful summary. I really appreciate being here today and being able to talk about this. I appreciate you coming on as well. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 